Okay. So the nervous system is broken down into two what major parts? Central nervous system and peripheral nervous system. What are the two things that are in the central nervous system? Which we've pretty much done, right? And then in the peripheral nervous system, we have two major systems. We have one going this way, afferent or sensory, and then we have one going this way. Right, and that is all known as what system? Somatic. Somatic nervous system, awesome. And then we said on the other side of the peripheral nervous system there was the autonomic nervous system, which had two major parts. Right, sympathetic and parasympathetic. Okay, so when we did that, we said the sympathetic nervous system comes from where? No, it comes from T1 to L2. So what we're gonna be learning today is when someone comes in, let's say with a joint fixation in the thoracic spine, what could be causing it? It could really, it could end up causing, if there was any kind of abnormal movement in the thoracic spine, it could end up hypersensitizing the nerve. And if it was at T1, T2, T3, T4, anywhere in the thoracolumbar area, what could it cause? Increased sympathetic stimulation. So if someone starts to come in and complain of GI issues, and it's going into the sympathetic mode, meaning, for example, constipation, then you would know after today what areas to mobilize. That's kind of the goal of the autonomic nervous system. Because your autonomic nervous system is going to come from your spine. Okay, so it comes from the lateral gray horn. And when we talk about sympathetics, it's gonna come from T1 to L2. So when you do a joint play or a mobilization anywhere between T1 and L2, you're essentially trying to modulate or change the sympathetic nervous system. Okay, so the parasympathetic nervous system came from where? Brain, okay, so we did this right before the midterm. What parts of the things that come out of the brain has parasympathetic? Cranial nerves, which one? Okay, 10 for sure, so we're gonna put 10 down here. 11, no, 11's all motor. Nine will have some, oops. Nine will have some autonomic. What else? Seven. Yes. Seven. And what else? <laughs> There's one more. One is only smell. Five. Two is only vision. Five. Five has no autonomic. Three. Okay, so since we are not remembering this very well, let's do a quick little review. Cranial nerve number three, what is the parasympathetics to cranial nerve number three? What's the autonomic component of cranial nerve number three? Okay, what is three? What's the name of three? Oculomotor. Okay, so we said it moves the eye, oculomotor, right? Moves the eye. But it also, remember we did this for the testing? Why did you do this? 
You're looking to see what the pupil's doing. Now you're not gonna be able to check to see if the convexity of the lens is changing, but that's the other thing that's happening. So that is parasympathetic. Can you save your pupils constrict? No. Right, so it's autonomic. Okay, so seven, what's the autonomic component of seven? Uh, okay, so submandibular and sublingual glands and lacrimal glands. What about nine? Parotid gland, and what about 10? The whole viscera, lungs, heart, and the whole pretty much upper GI. Okay, so we need to know the parasympathetic um, stimulation is gonna come from cranial nerves number three, seven, nine, and 10, and it comes from S2 to S4. Now it's still the lateral gray horn of S2 to S4, okay? So when we learned about the spinal cord, for example, if we, okay, so this is gonna be posterior, this is gonna be anterior. We said that right here was what? That little black dot right here, what is that? It's the posterior gray horn, which has what kind of information in it? Posterior sensory. It's sensory. So here we have what? Motor. The anterior gray matter, which is motor. And then this green dot right here was the lateral gray horn, which we said was really only developed in the thoracolumbar area, and the reason why is because it's autonomic. The cervical spine has no autonomic stimulation. From L2 all the way down to S1, L3 really all the way down to S1, there's no autonomic stimulation, so the lateral gray horn is not developed. Okay? Okay, so now that we know that, when we talk about the cranial sacral therapies, um, which is something you would do outside of this program, but it is a course that you can take and instill. What is your whole point of doing that? Why do people do craniosacral therapy? So the idea is by stimulating compression along the cranium, you're trying to stimulate cranial nerves three, seven, nine, and 10, which means you're trying to increase parasympathetic stimulation. If you're stimulating the sacrum, you're trying to stimulate the lateral gray horn of S234, which would increase parasympathetic stimulation. So a lot of people will talk about craniosacral therapy, they come out and they feel a little bit high, drunk, chilled out, and this is the reason why. Same thing after a massage, a lot of people will talk about that. Okay, so now that we know that. Okay, so the whole thing about the autonomic nervous system, we have preganglionic neurons and postganglionic neurons. So if you look at where this comes from, so this obviously would be denoting what, which system of the autonomic nervous system, these ones right here. Sympathetic, why? Because they're coming from the thoracolumbar area. Okay, good. So can you see that we have neurons that come from the lateral gray horn of T1 all the way down to L2, and these neurons are then going to go to certain ganglias. They're gonna to go to these conglomeration of cell bodies. So you have going from the spinal cord to these cell bodies. So these right here are known as preganglionic neurons. So if I were to draw one right here, I would have one going from the lateral gray horn of the spinal cord and it could go into this part right here, which is known as the sympathetic ganglionic chain, also known as paravertebral chain, or it could skip that and it could go into another ganglion 
which is outside of the sympathetic ganglion chain. It's actually anterior too. These are known as preganglionic neurons. Okay, so when we talk in the autonomic nervous system, there is always a first neuron that goes to a ganglia, and then there's always a second neuron that's gonna to go to the effector organ. Always, okay, there's one exception to the rule. But otherwise, always, always, always. So these would be known as preganglionic neurons. And that's gonna be important because I'm gonna ask you guys, preganglionic neurons coming from T1, T2, T3, T4, T5 is going to release what kind of neurotransmitter? And then we're gonna talk about, for example, the postganglionic neurons. So let's just say we have a neuron right here. And this is gonna to go to the effector organ. So this we would call our postganglionic neuron. And again, I'm gonna talk about today what neurotransmitter is gonna be released by the postganglionic neuron. So the whole function of the preganglionic neuron is to bring autonomic nervous stimulation from the spine to a ganglia. And if you remember what the definition of a ganglia is, it is conglomeration of cell bodies in the peripheral nervous system. And that happens only in the, like, in the TBD type area? Or so it's really close to it. The, the sympathetic ganglion chain is literally, like, yeah, just to the lateral aspect of the TVPs. The sympathetic ganglion chain is really, really, really close to the spine. These ganglias are anterior to the spine, but still pretty close to it. And so if you give me like an hour, I'll explain that in the sympathetic nervous system, the preganglionic neurons are actually really short, and the postganglionic axons are really long, whereas in the parasympathetic nervous system stimulation, if I had drawn a skull, the cranial nerves would go all the way, for example, cranial nerve number three, would go all the way to almost the eyeball, which would be the preganglionic. It would fire, I should probably use green actually. It would fire all the way close to the eyeball. And then you'd have your postganglionic axon that's super, super short that then actually goes to the lens. So when you're talking about your parasympathetic nervous stimulation, you have a long preganglionic axon and a very short postganglionic axon. But we will draw those more specifically. The other way, I think preganglion is shorter in parasympathetic. No, in sympathetic, 100%. Yeah. Okay, so for right now, I just need you guys to know that there is preganglionic which means from the lateral gray horn, if it's in the sympathetic nervous system, from the lateral gray horn of the spinal cord, thoracics and upper lumbar, going to either the sympathetic ganglion chain, which is known as paravertebral, which means right beside the vertebrae, right? Para usually means right around. Or it's gonna go, and I drew it laterally, but it actually goes to the front, towards the organs. Or it's gonna go to these collateral ganglia, also known as prevertebral ganglia, which tells you where they are. They're in front of the vertebrae, okay? So that is a preganglionic neuron. A postganglionic neuron is either gonna go from a ganglia, whether it's a sympathetic ganglion chain or a collateral ganglia, to the effector organ. So, 
We are also going to be talking about today, if this was my effector organ, which I should draw in a different color. If this was my effector organ, we're going to be talking about what neurotransmitters are released by the preganglionic neurons, which is always acetylcholine, always, always, always. And then we're going to talk about what receptor is on the postganglionic neuron. So what's going to accept acetylcholine? So typically in this case, it would be nicotinic, which we'll get to. And then you're going to have your postganglionic axon or neuron that's going to release a neurotransmitter. And in this case, we'll say it's norepinephrine because we're in the sympathetic nervous system. So then we have to talk about what receptor is on the effector organ that's going to accept norepinephrine to be able to create the action on the effector organ. So this is pretty much what we're doing today. We get, yeah. Like the ganglions, are they similar to any everyone? Like are they present at the same location for everyone? Fairly, yes. I mean, there's always people that are outside of what we consider to be textbook or classic or normal. But typically, yes, they're usually in the same location. And we're going to talk about the names of the ganglions. So I wrote them here. So if you look at the collateral or prevertebral ganglions, which is, this is in the sympathetic nervous system, their names are actually based on the arteries that they're right beside. So the celiac ganglion is right beside the celiac artery. Okay? The superior mesenteric ganglion is right beside the superior mesenteric artery. The renal ganglion is right beside the renal artery. The inferior mesenteric ganglion is right beside the inferior mesenteric artery. So the ganglions are actually named based on the arteries. Okay. So, so far so good for basic terminology. We're okay with all that stuff so far? Okay. Okay. Yeah, we talked about this already. So the whole point of the autonomic nervous system is to be able to maintain, maintain equilibrium. So we call that homeostasis. So basically, for example, do you always want your pupils to be dilated? No, because if it's really super bright out, you're actually going to damage your retina, right? So you want things to be able to change and accommodate based on your environment. So you don't always want to be super stressed and you always don't want to be super mellow because when you're super mellow, things don't necessarily get done either, right? Like if someone's trying to kill you, for example, not really a great idea. So your autonomic nervous system basically makes sure you're always in that equilibrium. Is it always, if you're in sympathetic mode, are you only in sympathetic mode? No, you always have a little bit of both. It's just what is predominant at that time. Like right now, We'll just say you guys are in a parasympathetic mode because you seem really, really... You're in sympathetic right now? Oh boy. Okay, you seem really calm to be sympathetic. But if you are in sympathetics, you might be like 65% sympathetics and only 35% parasympathetics. But your sympathetics would be taking over. Does that make sense? So it's not an all or nothing thing. This is kind of it does this and then it does this and then it does this constantly back and forth. Okay. So we do have to talk a little bit about your interoceptors. So we need stimulation, we need um, input from the body to be able to tell the brain whether or not we need to be in sympathetics or parasympathetics. So for example, if your carbon dioxide levels go really high, is that good? 
No. So that's going to send a message to your hypothalamus to say, hey, there's a problem here. So those are your osmoreceptors. They usually check all the chemicals in the blood. And if anything's off, they'll give a message to the hypothalamus to say, hey, hypothalamus, you've got to do something about this. And the hypothalamus is the one that basically controls the autonomic nervous system. Or we're going to have mechanoreceptors, like your baroreceptors. Like we have baroreceptors in the carotids, which if you remember, are controlled by cranial nerve number 9 and 10. So your baroreceptors, if your blood pressure's through the roof, your baroreceptors say, holy cow, there's a lot of pressure here. I'm going to send stimulation up to the hypothalamus to then say, hey, control this. Either get sympathetics going so that we can get the BP down, or we need to fix something, right? So your interoreceptors are really important. They provide sensory information to the brain, which is going to allow your autonomic nervous system to do what it needs to do to be able to keep you in equilibrium, in homeostasis. So the autonomic nervous system we know affects involuntary organs. So smooth muscle, glands, cardiac muscle. So we're not talking about skeletal muscle. Not today. Did that already. We're done with that. We're, all talk we're only talking about involuntary things that we can't control. Okay. This, so your quiz is next week, right? I did it yesterday, so this is fresh in my mind. You should know this chart. You should be able to tell me in each system what is happening in sympathetics and what is happening in parasympathetics. Okay? So, for example, your heart rate, what happens in sympathetics? Goes up. What happens in parasympathetics? Goes down. Um, what about your gastrointestinal motility in sympathetics? Pretty much gets halted. And in parasympathetics? Increases. Um, what about uh, your sweat gland? Increase in sympathetics and doesn't really work too much unless it's plus 60 degrees out in parasympathetics, right? So you need to have an idea of what's happening in every single system in sympathetics and parasympathetics. There's a couple of questions on that for sure. Just think, if someone's trying to chase you or kill you with an axe, for example, an axe murderer, what is your body doing? Right? So it's increasing blood circulation to the skeletal muscle, but decreasing blood circulation to the viscera. Whereas if you're on the beach, having a drink, chilling out, do you need to increase blood circulation to the skeletal muscle? No. But what about to the GI? Absolutely. Absolutely. So when we talk about blood dilation or constriction, it depends what area, right? If we're talking about skeletal muscle or if we're talking about viscera, because that will be very different for um, sympathetics versus parasympathetics. So definitely, I would know your systems. Okay, so here's your preganglionic and your postganglionic neurons. So, coming from the central nervous system, which really, this should say the lateral gray horn of the spinal cord. That's really what it should say. You're going to have your preganglionic cell body in the lateral gray horn of the spinal cord. It's then going to go, so your terminal bulbs are going to go and release acetylcholine in some kind of ganglia. So whether it's a collateral ganglia or whether it's a sympathetic ganglionic chain, that's what's going to happen. It's going to release a neurotransmitter. That neurotransmitter, which is going to be acetylcholine, is then going to stimulate the dendrites, because if you remember, the dendrites receive information, right? They have the receptors. So the dendrites are then going to be stimulated, which is now going to send an action potential along the next neuron, which is a postganglionic neuron, which is then going to release a neurotransmitter to be able to stimulate whatever action it wants to have, whether parasympathetic or sympathetic, to the effector organ. So the effector organ is going to have a receptor. 
Okay, so we already talked about that, where they come from. Just remember, cranium and sacrum is always parasympathetic. Thoracolumbar is always sympathetics. Okay, so for the next, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, all we're going to be talking about is sympathetics. Okay, then we'll do parasympathetics after. So when we look at sympathetics, there's four ways that your preganglionic axon can then synapse with the postganglionic axon. So you can have Okay, so I'm going to draw another one. Um, okay, just work with me. Pretend like there's... Oh, I'll just do another one. Okay, so I can have the lateral gray horn of anywhere between T1 to L2, which really it's T1 to T5, that's it. But anyways, for right now, this is all general. It's going to go in and synapse into the sympathetic ganglion chain, but not at its level. It says in the notes it can go up or down. Okay. That's very generalized. It only ever goes up. Okay. So it either synapses at the chain at its level, or it goes up the chain to synapse at a ganglion above. So for example, this one would synapse at the ganglionic chain at its level. So it just goes right to basically just past the TVP, goes into the sympathetic ganglion chain, synapses. That's one option. Or you can have the lateral brehorn preganglionic neuron that's going to go into the sympathetic chain and travel up it until it gets to the ganglion it wants, and then it's going to synapse. Right, it would enter its level, it's just where would it synapse? Okay, so it looks for whatever it wants. So right, level. right. Because the body knows what the effector organ it wants to target is, which, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Okay, so we have four options. So number one is lateral gray horn of the spinal cord, preganglionic neuron. It's going to go into the sympathetic ganglion chain or perivertebral ganglion chain, go up to whatever ganglion it wants to synapse into, and synapse. And then it's going to stimulate the postganglionic axon. Or it can go from the lateral gray horn of the spinal cord, T1 to L2, somewhere in there, and it can go right to the same level ganglion chain and synapse at that ganglion chain, and then stimulate the postganglionic neuron. Or you can get the lateral gray horn, which is then going to go past, really it's anterior, so past the sympathetic ganglion chain and then synapse into a collateral ganglia or prevertebral ganglia. Okay, so it doesn't have to use this chain. And in fact, only T1 to T5 uses the sympathetic ganglion chain, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. And then the last one. Are you using prevertebral and postganglionic antenna? So prevertebral and collateral ganglia? Yes, those are AKAs. Those are also known as for each other's. No, postganglionic is postganglionic neuron. So you have a preganglionic neuron, yeah. you have a postganglionic neuron. You have the paravertebral ganglia or ganglion, and that's the whole chain. That's the sympathetic ganglion chain. Or you have collateral ganglia or ganglia outside of the chain, which is actually anterior to, which are known as prevertebral. 
So prevertebral and, gang and collateral ganglia, same thing. Paravertebral and sympathetic ganglion chain, same thing. So where does that's the axon that leaves the ganglia to go to the effector organ. That's this. Post ganglion. So why is that a collateral one? It's after as well. Like you're saying that that goes to like the collateral, whatever, para. Why is that any different than a post ganglion that goes after? The, the ganglions are cell bodies. No, I understand that. Okay. Yes, I get the basics, I get. I just don't get the naming them. So there's pre-ganglionic, then it goes into that little... Whatever. Neurons. Yeah, which comes from the lateral gray form, and then it goes into that chain. Doesn't have to. It could also go into this collateral ganglia. Okay, so, but, so what's the difference? If it goes into the chain, then the one after is post-ganglion. If it doesn't, it's collateral. I don't understand the naming of these things, because that's what screws me up. Okay, so let's just look at the word ganglia, period. So when we look at a ganglia, it just means a group of cell bodies in the peripheral nervous system. This is a group of cell bodies in the peripheral nervous system. This is a group of cell bodies in the peripheral nervous system. So these two are your ganglia. So anything before these two would be a preganglionic neuron or axon. Anything after these two would be a postganglionic neuron or axon. So the neurons was actually taking the information from your ganglia. Okay. And then those, that lateral thing is another set of ganglia. Okay, got it. Okay. Okay, so hold on. We did, all right, okay. So we did option number one, which you can go, preganglionic neurons are going to go into the chain and synapse at a ganglia, not at its level. Number two, we have a preganglionic neuron that's going to go into the chain at its level and synapse there. Option number three, we have a preganglionic neuron from the lateral gray horn that's gonna pass the paravertebral ganglia and synapse at a collateral ganglia, which is also known as prevertebral. Or the last option, you're gonna have a preganglionic neuron that actually, um, we'll do something different doesn't go to a ganglia at all. It goes to a modified ganglia. The modified ganglia is the adrenal medulla. So if you guys remember, when we talked about the adrenal glands that sit on top of the kidneys, remember we talked about the cortex that has the three layers? And it releases aldosterone and cortisol and then some of the androgens, those are the three layers. Then we said, we're not really gonna talk about the inside of the adrenal gland because it's actually has, it's sympathetic, it's nervous system, it has nothing to do really with the endocrine system. So the adrenal medulla, which is the inside of the adrenal gland, is basically a modified sympathetic ganglion. So this one's a little bit different. The preganglionic neuron is gonna go from the lateral gray horn. It doesn't go to any ganglia, doesn't go to the sympathetic ganglion chain, doesn't go to the collateral ganglia, it just goes to the organ itself because it acts as a modified ganglia. So it's then going to stimulate the adrenal medulla. And the, if you remember what the adrenal medulla releases, remember what the adrenal medulla releases? Could be right, so it's gonna release norepinephrine or epinephrine and 
it releases the hormones. So it's not releasing neurotransmitters. It's releasing a hormone. So this one is quite different. It starts off as nervous system and ends up as endocrine. And it's the only one that's like that? Only one. So that is the only exception to the rule. Every other single preganglionic neuron will go to a prevertebral or collateral ganglia, and there will always be a postganglionic neuron. The only one that is different is just when it goes directly to the adrenal medulla. Okay, so that's kind of your exception to the rule. Okay, so those are the four options for how you get a preganglionic neuron or axon to a ganglia. Okay, so you either go through the chain and up it. To a ganglia, you go to the chain at the same level and synapse there. You're going to go to a collateral or prevertebral ganglia and synapse there, or you're just going to go right to the adrenal medulla and synapse there. Okay, so those are your four options. So they're all drawn there. Okay, so let's make this a little bit more complicated. So when we talk about our preganglionic neurons, they actually hop on nerves. So these aren't actually separate nerves on their own. The autonomic nervous system is actually going to do this. The lateral gray horn, so if I were to actually do this anatomically correct, the lateral gray horn would actually send information to the anterior part and then it would follow the anterior nerve root. Once an anterior nerve root goes through the intervertebral foramen, it then follows the spinal nerve. Okay, so the spinal nerve is going to continue. Oh, hold on. The spinal nerve is going to continue. So the spinal nerve is going to continue. And then if you remember, the spinal nerve is then going to become anterior and posterior primary rami. Okay, before it becomes anterior and posterior primary rami, you're going to have this little thing come off of the spinal nerve known as a white rami communicantes. That's where your sympathetics are actually going to come from. So sympathetics go lateral gray horn. They're going to follow the anterior nerve root, go through the intervertebral foramen, follow the spinal nerve. Before it divides into anterior posterior primary, it's going to follow the anterior rami communicantes to get into the sympathetic ganglion chain. So that's actually the true real pathway. Okay, so all you need to know about the rami, anterior rami communicantes is just that it brings the autonomic nervous system from a spinal nerve into the sympathetic ganglion chain. That's its only function. Yes, for sure. So the whole, the only function really for the anterior white rami communicantes is to bring the autonomic nervous system stimulation from a spinal nerve into the sympathetic ganglion chain. That's its whole function. Because at some point it has to jump off the spinal nerve. Because if it keeps going up the spinal nerve, then it's going to end up into anterior and posterior primary rami and it's going to end up in muscles and skin. We don't want that, right? Because there's no autonomics. What involuntary organs do you have in muscles and skin? None. So at some point you got to get it off the spinal nerve and you got to get it back into its ganglia. Does that make sense? Okay. Perfect. Awesome. Okay.
Yes. From from, so that's so this is all preganglionic, and then once it gets into the ganglia, it's going to synapse, and then it's going to synapse with a postganglionic neuron, which is then going to go to the effector organ. Yes. If it's the first one, if what if, if it's the third one, like if it's so it doesn't have a remic communicantes. It actually follows the nerve all the way until it gets to the ganglia. ganglia. Yeah. Okay. So this is just showing you, so the, my, the question I guess to pose for this slide is, why is it when you get a sympathetic reaction that it's a generalized reaction? So if you're scared or you're running away from something, why is it that everything works at the same time? So you get the goosebumps, your hair goes up, you start sweating, your heart rate increases, your bronchies dilate, um, your pupils dilate. Why does everything happen at the same time? Because you actually end up getting one preganglionic axon that can stimulate multiple postganglionic axons. So they say up to 20. So the reason why you get so much of a strong stimulation is because one sympathetic preganglionic neuron is going to synapse here, but then it's going to go like so that's why you get such widespread. Whereas with parasympathetics, you can get more local stimulation. Because with parasympathetics, one preganglionic neuron is going to stimulate only like maybe one to five postganglionic neurons. So your impact is much greater with sympathetics, and you get a much more generalized response. And that's the reason why. Okay. So we already talked about these. These are your ganglionic chains or just ganglions. So this slide is saying, in the sympathetic nervous system, we have two places that the preganglionic neuron will stimulate. It'll either stimulate, what do we call this one? The paravertebral, which is found right, literally if I were to draw, uh, if I were to draw a vertebrae, And I would draw this chain, like right here. Oops. Now oh, you get the idea. And it would be on both sides. And this chain that's literally right beside the TVPs basically goes all the way from the skull to the coccyx. Both sides, bilateral. So again, we're going to call these, which is this right here, around. So paravertebral ganglion, also known, and it's a chain because it goes all the way from the occiput to the sacrum. So we also call it the sympathetic ganglion chain because the only thing that stops at this chain is from T1 to L2. It's sympathetics, period. above diaphragm and then we're going to get to that in a minute we're going to draw it all out t1 to t5 is going to stimulate sympathetics to the head lungs and heart so anything above the diaphragm and then t5 to l2 is basically going to do everything below the diaphragm so we're going to talk about which ones go to the celiac and then what it does we're going to talk about which one goes to the renal and what it does 
Yes. Well, do you, do you sweat? If someone's chasing you, do you sweat in your face? Do your pupils constrict? Yes. So do they travel up there? Yeah. Remember we said one of the options was it goes into the chain and up the chain. Okay. Okay, so how are we doing so far? So when we talk about ganglia, cell bodies, so a whole bunch of cell bodies in the peripheral nervous system, for the sympathetics, we have two options. We have our paravertebral, also known as our sympathetic ganglion chain, or we have our prevertebral, which is these ones which is also known as collateral ganglia. So those we're talking about is just sympathetics. Okay. Okay, we're gonna go over there. Can you guys see over there? Okay, so we're drawing out the whole sympathetic nervous system. If you draw this, in my opinion, if you draw this out, you'll pretty much be able to answer any question. So we'll say we did green for preganglionic. Okay, so we're going to say preganglionic is green. Actually, let's label these first. So we know this is the paravertebral ganglion chain. There are three that are a little different. So we have a superior cervical ganglia. We have a middle cervical ganglia. And we have an inferior cervical ganglia. They're actually quite large compared to the rest of the sympathetic ganglion chain. So you need to know in the cervical spine, this chain actually has a really big superior cervical ganglia and a little bit of a smaller one that's still big, middle cervical ganglia, and then an inferior cervical ganglia, which is still big compared to the rest of them. So these three ganglias is what is going to allow you to stimulate anything above the diaphragm. Okay, so what would happen is from T1, T2, T3, T4, and T5. So if we're saying lateral great horn of T1, 2, 3, 4, 5, we automatically know we're in what system? Sympathetic. Sympathetics, because it's thoracolumbar. Thoracolumbar is always sympathetics. So T1, 2, 3, 4, 5 are gonna kind of come together and they're gonna go in the chain and then go up the chain. Now, they can synapse at the inferior cervical ganglia. Or they can go up and synapse at the middle cervical ganglia. Or they can go up and synapse at the upper cervical ganglia. Okay, so then, so then we're gonna have our postganglionic axons from the superior cervical ganglia that should be really long draw them really long. You mean pre? Postganglionic. Oh, that's pre. These are pre. Yep. Or we're going to have a post, if it goes to the middle of cervical ganglia, we're going to have a postganglionic neuron that's going to be, again, really long because it's going all the way, like right by the TVP. It's going from the TVPs and it's got to go all the way to the face, for example. Or it's going to go all the way to the heart or it's going to go all the way to the lungs. So it's a fair distance to go. So that's going to terminate into an effector organ. Or you can get the inferior cervical ganglia that's going to have a postganglionic neuron. It's an effector organ. Isn't this just skeletal muscle? Never skeletal muscle. This is autonomic nervous system. Oh. So we're either talking about cardiac muscle, glands, or smooth muscle, right? We're in the involuntary system. 
Effector organ just means what is the organ at the end that's being stimulated. That's all the effector organ means. So we're going to have different types of postgate. So let's just write this down. So we have preganglionic neurons coming from T1 to T5. They can go to the inferior cervical ganglia. And I'm just going to put a big square because it doesn't really matter what goes where for the cervical part. It's not really, I'm not, I'm not going to be all that picky. So the effector organ is going to be the head, so sympathetics to the head, or it's going to be the lungs, or it's going to be the heart. So what you do need to know about this is, if someone comes in with a lot of high blood pressure, for example, which is super common in practice, I'm sure you see that in clinic, what are you thinking? Okay, high blood pressure is parasympathetic or sympathetics? Sympathetics. Okay, so I know that if my heart has increased blood pressure, I know that my body's in sympathetics, what is actually causing that sympathetic reaction for the heart? Where does it come from? T1, 2, 3, 4, 5. So what you should do as a practitioner is you should palpate T1, 2, 2, T3, T4, T5, because is there something going on there that's increasing sympathetics to the heart? Yeah, and it could be poor diet too. But could there be something going on at T1 to T5 that you could modulate? So I will tell you, this, this whole odd number nervous system is pretty much the premise of how chiros do their adjusting. When you're trying to affect visceral organs, this is where you adjust. So it would be no different for you guys. You're just mobilizing or doing joint play. So instead of doing a grade five, you do a grade four, who cares? You're still gonna be able to have very similar effects. And in fact, there's a research article that came out about eight years ago that says a mobilization at a vertebral level actually has the same effect as a high velocity manipulation as the chiropractic adjustment. The only time I would say that is not 100% true is when it's a rib. But if you're affecting <coughs> organs, you mobilize that area. Check it first. Obviously, if everything is fine, you're not going to mobilize if there's not a problem. But if it's fixated, mobilize it. So you create a normal stimulation of the autonomic nervous system in that area. So again, same thing with lungs. Same thing with head. So when you stimulate anything above the diaphragm, head, heart, lungs, it is coming from T1 to T5, lateral gray horn of the spinal cord. T1, T2, T3, T4, T5. How many paraprofessional gigs do you have? Is there a number? They go based on, so how many, uh, 31? So it's basically for every single spinal level, you would have a ganglia. Yeah. Okay, how are we doing with this? Okay, so these blue ones are postganglionic neurons. Okay. Okay, so here we go. We are pretty much done with the sympathetic ganglion chain. We are now going to have preganglionic neurons that are gonna activate or release neurotransmitters into our collateral or prevertebral ganglia. And this is basically gonna do the whole GI system. 
Okay, so here we go. So T5, T6, T7, T8, T9, and T10 are going to come together and they're going to release the neurotransmitter in the ciliate ganglion. So this pregangly, now this is, don't get frustrated, but these ones all have names. So the preganglionic neuron coming from T5, T6, T7, T8, T9, T10 is actually called your greater splanchnic nerve. So if I were to ask you, what is your greater splanchnic nerve? You would say it's the preganglionic neurons from T5 to T10. Or you would say it's the preganglionic neurons that are going to activate or release a neurotransmitter into the ciliac ganglion. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that nerve is just going past the chain? Mm -hmm. It actually goes anterior to it. I just can't draw. Okay. So now let's talk about the effector organs. So this should still be really long. Way longer, I know it's kind of deceiving, but it should be way longer. Okay, so your postganglionic neurons are going to stimulate. What are we going to do for effector organs? Red. How do you spell uh, the greatest plant nerve? Right there. I, I know, but I'm just I'm not seeing the other colors. No, look, up oh. there. Oh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, it should be. <laughs> okay. okay, so the postganglionic neuron, yeah? So uh, from T5 to T10, from the ciliac ganglia, right? Is there any one particular ganglia or it goes to multiple uh, uh, like collateral ganglia? It goes to the ciliac. I mean, ciliac ganglia. Only Period. One you ganglia. got it. Okay. You got it. From the cilia ganglia, remember we said that one preganglionic neuron can do many postganglionic neurons because that has a huge effect. Okay, so I'm just drawing one postganglionic neuron because that makes it easier. But it's going to stimulate many things. So the postganglionic neuron coming from the cilia ganglia is going to stimulate stomach, spleen, pancreas. Gallbladder, liver, uh, kidneys, and yes, most of the small intestine. There's, you're going to see there's going to be some overlap. So, I'm going to ask a question, and it might not be in the quiz, but it'll definitely be on the final. Something like the postganglionic neurons that come from the ciliac ganglia will innervate what? Or, the preganglionic neurons of the stomach will come from where? T5, T10, lateral brain. That was celiac disease is named after. Celiac disease does affect the small intestine in the stomach because it's really about you're unable to absorb. It actually kills off your microvilli and your villi. So, yeah, is it truly named based on the arteries that supply the area or is it named on the ganglia that is located in that area? But the ganglia is named based on the artery, so. But yes, it would affect that region. Okay. So if I had to write like a, like a chain, 
it starts at T T one T five. From there to greater splenic nerve. From there no, to ciliate. No, T five T one to T five. It's gonna go head, heart, or lungs. Okay. T T five to T ten. Yes, T5 to T10, that makes up the greater splanchnic nerve, which is going to go to the celiac ganglia. That's all preganglionic, known as the greater splanchnic nerve. And then your postganglionic from this, from the celiac ganglia is then going to go to like Stomach. upper half of the GI, basically. How are we doing with this? So someone comes into you and complains of ulcers in the stomach. What are you thinking? Poor diet. <laughs> well, usually ulcers are increased acid release, and a lot of that is contributed to stress. Stress is in the sympathetic nervous system. So if someone comes into you with ulcers in the stomach, you may be thinking increased sympathetics. You're thinking increased sympathetics where? So where would you check? Five to 10. Does that make sense? Someone tells you that their poop is floating. It's really, really, really fatty. Gallbladder. Right, you think gallbladder or liver, right? Because bile may not be released. Okay, so if that's the case, what's shutting down liver and gallbladder? Sympathetics. Where does the sympathetics come for liver gallbladder? Five ten. So this is why it's really important to ask your questions, your health history questions, your whole like, not just MSK stuff, right? But you ask about visceral stuff. Because you can have an effect on this stuff. just by mobilizing or having or doing your joint play. Okay, so so far so good. Okay, so now we're gonna go 11 and 12, lateral gray horn of T11 and T12. It's gonna go all the way to the superior mesenteric ganglia. Renal? Oh, it might be renal. Is it renal? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. My bad. Yes, 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 yes. It is just 12 because that's lesser splanchnic. Lesser splanchnic at least. Yes, yes, yes. My bad. And this one is 12, and that's least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, totally. Totally, totally. Okay. You're right. So T10 to T11 is going to be your lesser splanchnic nerve, which is going to go to the superior mesenteric. Okay, so the superior mesenteric. Um, we didn't do a lot of artery stuff, but uh, the the mesentery is what? Do you remember from GI? It's all the stuff that holds the peritoneum of the small intestine. Okay, so that should give you even if even if you didn't remember anything, if you can break down the words, it usually starts to give you a little bit. So. If the superior mesenteric makes you think mesentery, it should make you think small intestine. Okay, so the post, oops, the postganglionic axons from here are going to stimulate small intestine, but they also do the upper half of the large intestine. So essentially, cecum, ascending colon, and the beginning of transverse. Okay, so like the first half of the large intestine. What would indicate problems with the upper half versus like 
like yeah for the for the large intestine that one would be really tough to be able to identify so you'd have to know based on your feelings and you you check it and you would know which one to mobilize um, small intestine would be fairly easy except that you'd have to check T5 all the way down to T11 right um, but it would be your absorption so what does your poop look like is it floating um, is there any nutrient deficiencies that kind of stuff right No, because the like you're saying if the anterior nerve root is affected. Mm -hmm. So say say you're seeing these symptoms and you do some mobilizations in that area. You also be seeing some symptoms being mediated in wherever else that might. No, not necessarily. Okay. No, not necessarily, because then you have to look at your nerve roots and your peripheral nerves mm -hmm. for that. Okay. Yeah, which is going to be. A it's almost like a, a whole different map. This is a whole, this is not your third map. I know, I was yeah. just wondering if it was, because there's some like connected therapy connection. So the pregame clinic neuron will use it to get there, but it uses it like railway tracks. Mm -hmm. So even if the railway tracks are a little bit damaged, they'll, they'll use a part that still works. Do you know what I mean? They're, no. just, they're just hopping on and hopping off. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so. So now we have, so lesser splanchnic nerve again is a preganglionic axon. That's gonna to go to the superior mesenteric ganglia. And then your postganglionic axon is then gonna to go to small intestine and the upper half of the large intestine. So then we have our least splanchnic nerve. Okay, the least splanchnic nerve, again, preganglionic axon from T12, goes into the renal ganglia. So, this should make you think something. Renal ganglia. Yes. So it's going to go long postganglionic axon. It's going to inner. Oops. It's going to innervate kidneys and the ureters. So notice there's dual stimulation for the kidneys here. Cilia ganglia and renal ganglia, or you can look at T5 to T10, and you can look at T12. So the kidneys do have dual stimulation. So if someone was having trouble like imaging their bladder fluid, you say, would you do that? I'd be looking at T12 first. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. Do we do any any harm if we activate all the things like from the greater splenic to lumbar splenic? Like if a client comes with multiple uh, things, like as a massage therapist, right? Because my concern would be whole back rather right. than concept. Like for Kairos, you will be concentrating on one level. Okay, so here's my thing. So if someone comes in with trigger points in supraspinatus, you're gonna do your trigger point therapy in supraspinatus, right? But if someone comes in and there's no trigger points in infraspinatus, are you gonna do trigger points, in, are you gonna do a trigger point treatment in infraspinatus? No. So my question to you is, why would you mobilize an area that feels totally fine? 
But if it feels fine to you, you're, you can try and have an effect. I might not go grade four. I might just do something a little bit more general, like one, two, maybe three. But unless I feel, and it might be hard now because your skills aren't, like your puppetry skills aren't that strong, but once you're out there and you're doing this all day, every day, you're gonna be able to catch very, very small subtleties. And if there's a problem, I will mobilize it or I'll adjust it, for sure. But if there's not, I worry more about adjusting or mobilizing something that's already moving well, and if I keep doing that, what happens in the long run? Mm -hmm. Hypermobility. And now you've got a whole other slew of issues that can affect the autonomic nervous system. So my personal belief is I don't touch things that feel normal. I mean, the relaxation treatment, sure. I mean, you're trying to get a global effect that's a bit different. But I'm saying very specific aggressive treatments, techniques, I don't typically use unless it's needed in that area. That's what my concern is from first semester. I was like uh, uh, worried about this. Like, why massage treatment should be one hour? Like, for example, I have a client last week. Yeah. He has a lung, uh, L1, sorry, L5S1 disc prolapse. Yeah. And he, it's acute, so you don't want to um, uh, like clear that tone or protect. You don't want to get rid of all the spasm. Spasm, right? Pressure. Right. Uh, so his main concern was like he's not using his hamstrings because he cannot bend. So he just wants to get rid of that uh, stiffness. Yep. So how long I can work on hamstrings, right? So what our instructors are telling is like, we have to work toward the body, which I don't want to, right? Because I'm more doing harm than doing this. And you're there for an hour, why, right? I think it's more of like a learning thing. It, yeah, that's like a clinic. Your but own you're harming, you right? Like when people come see me, even though they booked for an hour, after my assessment, I may only say to them, you know, we're only doing half an hour today. Or they're rarely, but there have been cases where I say, I'm only doing 15 minutes today. Um, so you'll, you'll be able, unfortunately with clinic, um, they want to give you the time for your assessments and then for your Remex. And so booking the whole hour, they, yeah, it's very structured here, but it, it's not necessarily structured in practice. Um, Relaxation treatments, oftentimes people are full body and you're gonna to wanna to use the whole hour. But if there's someone coming in with a very specific complaint, I'm, if, if I don't think I need the hour, or if I think it's gonna to be too much for them, I don't, like I don't use it. So you'll, you'll make that judgment call when you're out there. But unfortunately for school, so what I would say is treat the area for whatever it is, 15, 20, 30 minutes that you feel you need for that area. And then why not talk about postural stuff? Why not talk about exercises? Why not get them to do active on the table? That's what I would say for the other 15, 20 minutes. Why not? It's all within the scope of practice massage. I could do exercises and training someone for the whole hour and bill it as massage. It's under my scope of practice, right? Okay. Okay, so the last one we're gonna have going from L1 and L2. So this one's pretty easy. We're going to call this the lumbar splanchnic nerve. Okay, the lumbar splanchnic nerve is going to bypass the sympathetic ganglion chain. It's going to release acetylcholine into the inferior, mes mes the inter inferior mesenteric ganglia. Okay, so if the superior mesenteric ganglia makes you think Small intestine, what does the inferior mesenteric ganglia make you think of? Cool. Right. 
So the inferior mesenteric ganglia, long postganglionic axon, is going to do that bottom half. So the rest of the transverse colon, the descending colon, the rectum, and anus. So we're going to put, oops, we're going to put distal half. Distal half of colon plus rectum. Okay. So, the types of questions we would ask. In the spinal cord, what stimulates the small intestine? So you would go all the way from T5 all the way to T11, right? Because greater splanchnic the small intestine, but so does lesser splanchnic. Or I would ask, um, what preganglionic neuron in the sympathetic system will stimulate the gallbladder? Which preganglionic neuron? Greater. So you would say the greater splanchnic nerve, because I asked for preganglionic neuron. What ganglion is responsible for supplying the kidney? So now I'm asking ganglia, so I'm asking this or this? So celiac and renal. Right? Does that make sense? So those are definitely the kinds of questions I'm going to ask. Someone comes in complaining of uh, ulcerative colitis, which we're going to say is, um, have you guys learned ulcerative colitis? Not yet, right? Okay, so it's basically ulcerations, and usually it's in the large intestine, so it's usually in the colon, it can be in the small intestine, but it's usually in the large intestine. So let's just say there's fissuring or ulcerations in the large intestine. What does that make you think? So ulcerations, that means the mucosal lining is being degraded. What system would you be in? Okay, what system are you in? Let's, let's go way back. Are you in parasympathetics or sympathetics? Okay, so you're in sympathetics. So now you're gonna say, okay, large intestine. Large intestine comes from where? So lumbar splanchnic and lesser splanchnic, right? So again, what are you going to do? Check those areas. Are you going to fix ulcerative colitis? It's an autoimmune You're not going to fix it. But could you help with the symptoms? Could you decrease the sympathetics to help with the symptoms? That's your whole point. We're not, I'm not telling you you're curing everything. That's, that's not what's happening here. But your job is when you're treating people, not just MSK, there's other things you can have an effect on by treating MSK areas. But isn't okay? ulcerative colitis like an overreaction? Of, like, it's an autoimmune disease. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You're not gonna fix it. But no one's gonna fix it. Can you have an effect on it to help with their symptoms, at least temporarily? Possibly. Okay, so how are we doing with the sympathetic nervous system? If you draw it, it I find it's way easier because then you can answer pretty much almost any questions. So, okay, the next thing we're going to be talking about after we do the parasympathetic, we're going to talk about the splanchnic nerve releases what? Acetylcholine. The lesser splanchnic nerve is going to release what? 
acetylcholine. The least likely nerve is going to release what? Acetylcholine. So long story short, every single preganglionic neuron is going to release acetylcholine, whether you're in parasympathetics or sympathetics, period. So that's easy. Okay? We're going to call all of these preganglionic neurons cholinergic neurons. We say cholinergic neurons because they release acetylcholine. So if I were to ask you what cholinergic neurons do you have, you're going to say every single preganglionic neuron in the sympathetic and parasympathetic is a cholinergic neuron because they all release acetylcholine. So acetylcholine is released here, acetylcholine is released here, acetylcholine is released here, acetylcholine released, 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 released. Which means now that these postganglionic neurons have to have receptors. Right? I'm just going to put a big line for receptors. So these have to have receptors. So these receptors are going to be what kind of receptors? Cholinergic receptors, because they're going to accept acetylcholine. We're good with this? We're going to learn that there's two types of cholinergic receptors. There's nicotinic and there's muscarinic. Nicotinic receptors are the ones found on postganglionic neurons. So this would be a nicotinic receptor. This would be a nicotinic receptor, nicotinic receptor, nicotinic receptor, nicotinic receptor, nicotinic receptor, nicotinic receptor. So the receptors on the dendrites of postganglionic neurons are going to be nicotinic receptors, which are cholinergic receptors. They accept acetylcholine. Whereas if I were to draw here, these receptors in the sympathetic nervous system, we have an exception to the rule. Don't kill me, but we have one exception to the rule. But typically speaking, postganglionic neurons are going to release norepinephrine. So we're going to call these adrenergic neurons because they release adrenaline. Norepinephrine is a type of adrenaline. Okay. So these would all release norepinephrine. There is an exception to the rule, but we'll just say for right now they're all norepinephrine, which means these receptors have to be adrenergic receptors because so they're going to accept. All receptors are adrenergic. In the sympathetics. Right now we've only done sympathetics. only exception to the rule is sweat glands. Sweat glands don't respond to norepinephrine. So sweat glands respond to acetylcholine. So for example, the sweat glands of the head, those postganglionic neurons would have to release acetylcholine. And then that sweat gland, the receptor on it would be a muscarinic receptor, which is actually a cholinergic receptor that accepts acetylcholine. So there, we're going to talk about that. There are slides coming up with that. But since we're here, we might as well mention it. And then it'll be repeated. Okay, so that is the only exception to the rule when we talk about sympathetics. Well, okay. The adrenal gland is obviously another one, right? Because the adrenal gland, remember, there's, it goes directly, the preganglionic goes directly to the adrenal medulla, and then it releases hormones. So obviously that is an exception to the rule as well. But you're not like can you keep like talking about like celiac 
Your plexi's are basically, remember we said one preganglion can do many postganglion. So remember our plexus, like the brachial plexus, what is that? It's five nerves going in and out, meshing together, and then creating a whole bunch of nerves. So these postganglionic neurons are actually known as plexides. Because you can have, like look how many things you're stimulating. So you can have 10 postganglionic neurons. So what that looks like is it looks like, it looks like a mess. It looks like the brachial plexus, okay? So your plexides are just your postganglionic neurons. Which you would call this, your, for example, your um, thorax. You would call it your cardiac plexus. You would call it your lung plexus which your cardiac plexus or your lung plexus would be coming from T1 to T5. So your plexides are just your postganglionic neurons. Okay, so that's everything you need to know pretty much for the sympathetic nervous system. How are we doing? Yeah, we're gonna take a break. I think we need to take a break. I'm seeing a few people fade. But there's no questions before we go on break. Okay, let's come back at 9.30. Everybody go get coffee. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sympathetics. We haven't done parasympathetics okay. yet. Where do sympathetic preganglion neuron runs from? So lateral gray horn of somewhere between T1 to L2. Okay. Right? To the ganglions. Right. So, for example, head, lung, heart will be T1 to T5. Um, here, upper half of the GI is going to be T5 to T10. T10? Right. Only to the, to the ganglion. From there, it becomes post-ganglionic. You got it. Where does a uh, celiac ganglia located? So um, there's a celiac artery that actually goes right to the stomach and then splays out to like liver pancreas. Um, so where that artery is, it's oh, okay. like anatomically there. Anatomically, it's located next to the. Yeah, and that's why they actually named that is because they're actually located right beside the arteries. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what I was
Oops. You guys take Remex next semester. There's, and you probably you haven't learned scoliosis treatment yet, right? No. <clears throat> so I just looked at her and I was like, I need you to give me a minute. And I had to go to the hydro room and talk through it with Catherine because I, I, all we know is that there's a C and an S curve. Right. She has yeah. a C curve to the right. She had a C curve to the right with a with a little bit of an S curve at the bottom. So I like ran my fingers along just to see where it was. And then, so just think about it. So your erector spinae, so you're saying C curve to the right. Let's yeah. just take it simple. Yeah. Your erector spinae on the right are doing this. Are all going to be stretched. Right. So do you want to relax them? No. Right. So you're going to stimulate them. Perfect. Now this one is going to be like super tight. Super so tight. you want to relax those. Right. You want to do more, like slower, more... Non Deep like trigger point type stuff, and here you're gonna do to poke yeah. mint. So Perfect. And then for Remex, you she, want, I didn't give her any Remex. That's fine. Her heat because she told me that she had her own stuff. And that's fine. But you will learn in Remex that your goal is to try and normalize the spine. Yeah. So what you're gonna want her to do is you want her body to go this way. You want right because if <clears throat> if my spine's sticking out this way, yeah, if I do this, it forces, forces. those TBPs, oh, okay. right? So, you know, like when you do child pose in yoga, yeah. so you don't get them to do forward you, and then each side, you just want her to do the you one just side. want her to do the one side, so you go the towards the side, the side of the, 
of the convexity. You got it. I would be almost scared to do that um, just because of it's depending on how severely it so is. It doesn't matter. No, no. How old is she? 21. Okay, scleridimally mature. Where you want to be careful is under the age, depending if it's a girl under the age of 16, if it's a boy under the age of 18, because they're still they're still growing and the curve can still continue to grow. Which a right-sided curve is actually the best curve to have because it's really dangerous in females primarily. On the left side, because it can start to compress the heart and the lungs, primarily the heart. Um, but yeah, exactly what you think you should have done is exactly what you should have done. And yeah, if normally you, stuff that you learn in, in class for treatments and Remex, if you sit down and think about it as to what's reasonable, you'd probably do the right thing. Yeah. I, I was just like, she walked in and then I did her assessment and then afterwards she like, on the gym when I walked in, I unbraked the back, I was like, whoa. Like, it was just... And then lots of strengthening on the right side, okay. right? So doing like single side, I wouldn't do bilateral single side, like raises with weights or whatever, depending on how strong she is. She was really like really Now the rib humping, that happens because your TVPs, with rotation, you always get lateral flexion, right? Yeah. It, they happen in combination, they have to. So she has pain with less lateral flexion and less rotation. So if the ribs are humping, she's already rotated. So if, if, if this, let's just say this was her vertebrae, if her ribs are humping on the right, which is where they should be humping, because that's where the convexity is, her, vertebra, her vertebral bodies are already like this. So can she go much more to the left? Which is why it was probably painful, because yeah. already she's already in that position. So you, what you could do is you could start working on doing some TBP mobilizations, right, to try and get you never to the left. Do you to the right? Yeah, so I wouldn't be doing it on the SPs, right? I'd be doing it on the TVPs, yeah, so right? Yeah, the lateral... Like P to A, posterior to anterior, okay, right? Okay. Um, and then you can do rib humping mobs, like P to A mobs right on the ribs, right? Okay. And again, your whole, like, when you, when you mobilize the ribs, <clears throat> what you're going to be doing is you're going to be doing this to the TVPs because the ribs... The rib head attaches to the vertebral bodies, and the transverse processes attaches to the rib so tubercles. The mobility. Yeah. That? Yeah. Okay. Because she's like this. That's not normal. You want her to be able to. She's probably got like very limited I rotation. Over it and it, she didn't move. Like they didn't right. Move at all. Right. Yeah. But over time, and then you can give her some self-mobilization techniques, like a pool noodle or, I don't know, a foam roller, but only on the right side. You might want to start with a towel roll if she hasn't had a lot of treatment, something that's a little bit softer, but only on the right side, and you're going to get her to like lay on it, right? And so she can self-mobilize those TVPs and those ribs. So there's, there's so much you can do for these people. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Well, well, it's, it's MSK. That is true. It's, I mean, you can, but it's MSK stuff. Like, I had a any massage therapist can treat that, right? Yeah, I had a patient, not necessarily scoliosis, but they had a hump at C7 T1, which is literally a really bony piece. And I had just like a plateau right there. And they were standing up perfectly fine, but that particular part just didn't move at all. I ended up doing distraction to see if it removed anything, but there were no neurological symptoms. That's fine. It's probably MSK. 
Joy mobile. Treat all the muscles around it. Because there's probably a ton of hypotonicity, right? Because if the joints aren't moving, everything around is going to be like, well, I'm going to keep it like this. So get rid of the hypertonicity, mobilize the area, get things moving, get things normal. Mm. You might not be able to fix it, no. but your, your goal is to improve it. I did work in that area. I ended up doing a lot of, just because it was bilaterally mm -hmm. the same, so I did a lot of relaxation in that area. Mm -hmm. But I also recommended to see potentially chiropractor for adjustments if you be. Why? You can mobilize. I, <clears throat> yeah, I really, this is my pet peeve. You always see a chiro massage therapist working together. So in the scope of practice of chiro is soft tissue. In the scope of practice of massage is joint mobilizations. So why is it that chiros treat joints and the massage therapists treat the muscles? Essentially what you're doing is you're, this is just my opinion, but essentially what you're doing is you're double believing a patient for something that you could do. I think massage therapists are putting themselves in a the little box. I am a massage therapist and I, I feel like most of the massage therapists out there don't do joint mobs and they put themselves in a the little, little, little box. All I can do is soft tissue work, like not joint work. Shit. You learn it, use it. Why would you go send them to a chiro when you can do this? When you can have the biggest effect, when they think you're the best and they're gonna basically refer everybody to you. Like, why would you refer out? Now, if it's a rib, I get it. Because you don't wanna mobilize a rib, you're, it's gonna cause so much pain, you're gonna put them into a huge spasm. But anything other than a rib, why wouldn't you treat it? It doesn't make any sense. To me, it's, to me, it's unethical, because you're double building a patient for something that each of you could have done. Now, the Kairos, I don't treat like this, but a lot of chiros. Okay, I'm working on an apple. Um, chiros, they like to like the treatments are usually quick. I don't treat like that, but most chiros do. So they don't want to do the soft tissue work. They want someone else to do it. They're just going to bill for their. So that's that's a practice monetary thing, which I also feel is very unethical. But anyways. No, no, term five, I, the term fives, I have neuroanatomy. They've all learned joint play and mobs, and I had this exact same conversation with them, and their, their, their statement to me was, I don't feel comfortable doing it. I'm like, get comfortable. Because you can do this! Why would you refer out? To me, that's crazy. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways. Oh, shoot. Okay. Okay, so we're done the sympathetic nervous system. Finito. So now we're doing parasympathetics. I can't really draw parasympathetics as well. So we're just going to talk about it. Okay. This is kind of what your preganglionic and postganglionic neurons are going to look like, okay? So in the parasympathetic nervous system, you're either going to be coming from the cranial nerves 3, 7, 9, and 10 or you're coming from anterior gray horn, sorry, lateral gray horn of S234, okay? That's the only option. Your preganglionic neuron is really long because your ganglia, so your ganglia is really close to the effector organ. So for example, for cranial nerve number three, cranial nerve number three comes from where? Okay, forebrain, midbrain, pons, or medulla? Midbrain. Midbrain. 
mesencephalon. So cranial nerve number three is going to come from the mesencephalon. It's going to go all the way until it gets to the ganglia for the eye, for the lens, which is really close to the pupil in the lens. So your preganglionic neuron in the parasympathetic nervous system is super long. Because your ganglia is so close to the organ, your postganglionic neuron is super short. short. Now, in the sympathetic nervous system, which we said is lateral gray horn of T1 all the way down to L2, it's going to either go in the sympathetic ganglion chain, which is known as your paravertebral ganglia, or in the collateral ganglia, which are known as your prevertebral ganglia, and they're kind of close to the spine. So your prevertebral ganglia, or your preganglionic neurons are short. Now it's going to go all the way from the sympathetic ganglion chain or from the collateral ganglia all the way to its organs. So they are long. Okay, so now that we know that, and we know where our parasympathetic stimulation comes from. So we know cranial nerve number three does the lens and the pupil. So it's called the ciliary ganglion. Okay, so it's, and it's gonna be literally like right behind the eye. So your post ganglion is gonna be super short. Is there a reason for the fact that there's no like The synaptic area is in the ganglia, right? Because, I'll just, I'll just do this quickly, but like we said our preganglionic neurons are gonna release acetylcholine. And then we said our postganglionic neuron dendrites are gonna accept acetylcholine. So your synaptic cleft is happening in the ganglia. Okay. Okay, so when now cranial nerve number seven, we said it's going to innervate the lacrimal glands, mucous membranes, and it's also going to innervate sublingual and submandibular. So it's actually going to have two separate ganglia, one for salivation and one for lacrimal glands, essentially. So you're going to have your pterygopalatine. Um, do you guys remember your pterygoid plates? Where do they come from? Why are they called medial and lateral pterygoid? Because they come from the medial and lateral pterygoid plates. Those are the things that stick out below the sphenoid bone. In, in anatomy one, you learn the sphenoid bone, right? Yeah. Okay, so when you learned about the greater wings, which makes the, the floor, basically, and you learned about the lesser wings, which basically goes towards the eyeball, below the sphenoid bone, you had like two, two things sticking out like this, below the sphenoid bone. And those are known as your pterygoid plates. That's how your medial and lateral pterygoids are named based on. They're based on these pterygoid plates. That's how that's, they're named based on their attachments. So the pterygopalatine, if you think of that pterygopalatine, it's where those pterygoid plates are and close to your palate. So it's like, like back here, like Okay, so I mean, you can kind of have an idea of where this would be. That's gonna innervate your lacrimal glands. 
It's also going to do a little bit of your mucosa. Now, I said palate, pharynx, and nasal mucosa, but it's the mucosa of the palate. It's the mucosa of the pharynx. So we're talking about mucous membranes in those areas. Okay? So pterygopalatine ganglia is going to do your lacrimal glands and all the mucous membranes. Then you're going to have your submandibular ganglion, which makes you think submandibular salivary glands. So that's what that, that ganglia is going to do the salivary glands, which is sublingual and submandibular, for cranial nerve number seven. So cranial nerve number seven has two ganglia, one from lacrimal and mucous membranes, and then one for salivation. Okay? So that is different. And then we're going to have the otic ganglia. Um, parotic. I know parotid. That's a stretch. But I, well, come on. Work <laughs> with me. Anyways, the parotid gland is going to be, it, the otic ganglia is going to be for the parotid gland, which is cranial nerve number nine. nine. Cranial nerve number nine. Right? Glossopharyngeal. So cranial nerve number three, we said, came from mesencephalon or midbrain. And it's going to go to the ciliary ganglia, and it's going to do pupil and lens. Okay? Cranial nerve number seven is known as facial. comes from where? Five, six, seven, eight come from the pons. So cranial nerve number seven, facial nerve, that comes from the pons, one of them is going to go to the pterygopalatine ganglia to do lacrimal and mucous membranes, and another one could go to the submandibular ganglion to do salivation, so sublingual and submandibular glands, okay? Then you're going to have cranial nerve number 9, which comes from where? 9, 10, 11, 12, come, or 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 come from? Medulla. So from the medulla, you're going to have a preganglionic neuron that's going to go all the way to the otoganglia, and then that's going to stimulate the parotid gland. So those are the only ganglia you really need to know for the parasympathetics. You don't need to know the cardiac ganglia and the lung ganglia. and the, the, all Because the, the vagus nerve goes everywhere. everywhere. It's vagabond. It does heart, lungs, and your whole GI system, upper third, or upper two-thirds, we're going to say. So if you can think of the equivalent your T1 all the way down to L2, yeah, L2-ish, yeah, ish, we'll see, T1 to L2-ish, all of this is a sympathetic component for what vagus does. So vagus is going to do heart, lungs, it's going to do stomach, spleen, pancreas, gallbladder, liver, small intestine, all of it, and proximal part of the large intestine and kidneys too. So that's all vagus, it's huge. We don't have, thank God, we don't have individual ganglia that we have to memorize. It's just a big ganglia for the heart, the ganglia for the lungs, the ganglia for the liver. And usually they're right on the capsule of the organ. So it tells you that this post-ganglionic neuron is gonna be super short, right? Super short, okay. <clears throat> Okay, so then we have to talk about S2 to S4. So the lateral gray horn of S2 to S4 is going to do what? Degrade lower parts of the 
Great. So it's going to do the rest of the transverse colon. It's going to do the descending colon. And it's going to do the cecum. Okay. So basically, your cranium is going to innervate everything from two-thirds of the GI pretty much all the way up. And S2 to S4, genitalia as well. Does genitalia, and then it does your lower part of the large intestine. Okay? <clears throat> so the bladder is usually done. Um, it may have dual stimulation, and that one I'm not talking about because it is a little bit of variation. It can be done by S2 to S4, but it can also be done by vagus. So that does sometimes. And same thing with kidney, actually. <laughs> right now. Okay, so these preganglionic neurons coming from S2, lateral gray horn of S234, you can see how long they are. They go to the organ capsule essentially, synapse, and then there's a little postganglionic stimulation that's going to go to that organ. So it basically just goes through the organ capsule and then stimulates the organ. Okay? So this is what we would be looking at for parasympathetics. Again, coming from the cranium and coming from the sacrum. So thoracolumbar means sympathetics. Cranial sacral means parasympathetics. Okay, awesome. Yeah, yeah, we talked about this. That's fine. Right. Like, I know I will kind of ask the same question, but is there any overlap? Like something happens to your cauda vagina, are the parasympathetics out the window too, or? Um, okay, so cauda equina would be right. So you have motor and sensory innervation going to like genitalia, kidneys coming from your cauda equina, right? So the reason that you would usually have incontinence is because you now are well, your skeletal muscle is letting go. There, if it's really compromised, severely compromised, where the, like the nerves are completely severed, then yes, you wouldn't have the autonomic stimulation going through. But if they're just compressed, and this is where it's not an all or nothing question, how much are they compressed? Is there still enough of a pathway for that autonomic nervous system to get through? Because if it is, then the autonomic nervous system is still working. If, if it's a, a huge compression, or it's then yes, the autonomic, because it doesn't have a pathway to get to where it needs to go. But if it's a beginning of an infection where there wouldn't be a ton of compromise, no, you probably wouldn't have, you'd have your, like the anus, the external anal sphincter is skeletal muscle. That would let go, but the internal one would still be working, right? Because that's voluntary, because it, it would just be a small compromise. So, when we teach, we teach in all nothing, but it's not really in real life all nothing. <laughs> there is gray. There is gray. Okay. All right, so that's fine. All the effector organs are um, viscera, right? Okay, so we talked, someone asked the question already about our plexis. Our plexis are just our postganglionic axons that are going, or neurons that are going to an effector organ. So you have your cardiac plexus, for example. So this would be known as your cardiac plexus. You would have your pulmonary plexus. You would have your celiac plexus, which is your postganglionic axon coming from your celiac, or the, the celiac anglia. 
The other name for celiac is solar. So when people talk about, I got punched in my solar plexus. Where'd you just get punched? Right here. So stomach, small intestine area, right? So celiac is interchangeable for solar plexus. So if you do see, if someone talks about your solar plexus, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about these postganglionic neurons going to the upper part of the GI system, okay? So those are just your plexides. So your splanchnic nerves are preganglionic. Your plexides are postganglionic. Okay. All right, that's just what the plexus looks like, a mass of nerves. Okay. So here we go with our receptors and our release of neurotransmitters. So we're saying that in the lateral gray horn, it's going to follow a spinal nerve. It's going to go through the intervertebral foramen. Oh, not, don't look at that one. That's somatic. So from the lateral gray horn, it's going to go through the spinal nerve. It's going to go through the intervertebral foramen. It should really hop on to a rheumatic communicantes if it's going to go into the sympathetic ganglion chain or it's going to continue into the ganglia following a spinal nerve, okay? So once this pregangliona gets to a ganglia, it <laughs> releases neurotransmitters. So your preganglionic neurons are going to release acetylcholine. Then right here, if this is a ganglia, ganglia means a conglomeration of cell bodies. So that tells you the dendrite in the cell body of the postganglionic neuron is right here, which is why I tried to draw it like this. Your dendrites and your cell body, they're in the ganglia, okay, for your postganglionic. So your dendrites are going to have receptors on them. So right here, this ball would have a receptor on it to be able to accept the acetylcholine. Yeah? And they're like up to 20 dendrites. Yeah, I, I could draw a whole bunch of them. You're right, 100%. In the sympathetics. In the parasympathetics, it could be one, two, three, four. It's not as big. But yes, you're right. I could draw 20 of them if I wanted to, for sure. Okay, so then we would have our, so we, the postganglionic receptors would accept a neurotransmitter, so they would get stimulated. They would do an action potential all the way down until it got to the terminal bulb and go spit out other neurotransmitters that will then stimulate the effector organs because the effector organs have receptors on them. So we're good with that. Okay, so now let's talk about all the options. Okay, so in the parasympathetic, okay, so in the parasympathetic system, so we're talking about Carry nerves 3, 7, 9, and 10, or the lateral gray horn of S2, 3, 4. That's where your preganglionic neurons are going to come from. Those preganglionic neurons are going to release acetylcholine. So these neurons are called cholinergic neurons simply because they release acetylcholine. So the preganglionic axons going to the otic ganglia are cholinergic because they release acetylcholine. The preganglionic neurons coming from cranial nerve number three going to the ciliary ganglia are cholinergic neurons because they release acetylcholine. 
lateral gray horn, the preganglionic neurons coming from the lateral gray horn of S2, are called cholinergic because they release acetylcholine. So we're good with that. And then after they do Well, parasympathetics, that's sympathetics. So in the, let's keep going with the parasympathetics. So now I have to have a receptor here. My dendrites need to accept the acetylcholine. So this is going to be known as a cholinergic receptor because it's going to accept acetylcholine. We have two different kinds of cholinergic receptors, nicotinic and muscarinic. So this one is going to be known as nicotinic. Okay, pretty much all the cholinergic receptors on postganglionic neurons are nicotinic, period. Okay, that's kind of the rule. All of them. Oh, yeah, which we're going to get to in a minute. But the receptors on the postganglionic neurons are always nicotinic because they can only be nicotinic or muscarinic. But they're always, always, always going to be nicotinic. So preganglionic dendrites or postganglionic dendrites are nicotinic. The receptors on a dendrite, right? That's what a dendrite is. It's, it receives information. Okay, so then we're gonna have this postganglionic neuron in this parasympathetic nervous system that's going to release acetylcholine. Therefore, I would call my postganglionic neuron a cholinergic neuron. Everybody's good with that? Okay, so now. My effector organ has to have what? What kind of receptor? Or muscarine. Right. So it has to have a cholinergic receptor. This one is going to be muscarinic. So muscarinic is on effector organs. Nicotinic is on dendrites of postganglionic neurons. So now let's do the sympathetics. Uh, Parasympathetic is pretty easy. It's one example. Like this is what happens in every single option. Whether you're creating of three, seven, nine, ten, S two, S two, S three, this is exactly what happens. Sympathetics has a few variations. Okay, so we said lateral gray horn of T one, T two, T three, T forty five, all the way down to L two. Come, that is sympathetics. Okay, so our preganglionic neurons are going to release. Acetylcholine. So what am I calling the preganglionic sympathetic neuron? Cholinergic. Okay, so this is, we're going to put a big fat star here. This is your exception to the rule. Oops. This is your exception. This is your regular. Okay? Oh, <laughs> Okay, this is what happens when you don't write and you just do short forms. Okay, so let's do the exception, because that's the one I drew first. So the preganglionic neurons release acetylcholine, so we know they're cholinergic. That means my receptor on the postganglionic neuron going to sweat glands is going to be a cholinergic neuron, which is nicotinic. 
right. Okay, great. So now, my postganglionic neuron, normally in sympathetics, you would not release acetylcholine. You would release some kind of adrenaline because you're in a sympathetic mode. But this is the exception to the rule. So in fact, the postganglionic neuron actually releases acetylcholine, which is why it's an exception to the rule. So that means that what kind of receptor do you have to have on your sweat gland? You need to have a cholinergic receptor. So either nicotinic or muscarinic. But muscarinic is always at the effector organ. So this is going to be a muscarinic receptor. How are we doing with this? So that's the only exception in sympathetics. In sympathetics. So parasympathetic is always the same. Always the same. Easy peasy. Okay. So now let's do what's normal in sympathetics. Okay. So from T1 to L2, lateral gray horn, which we know is automatic sympathetics, our preganglionic neuron is going to release acetylcholine. So I would call my preganglionic neuron a cholinergic neuron. Okay. Now I have to have a receptor to accept acetylcholine. So what kind of receptor am I going to have here? It is nicotinic. So it's a it's a cholinergic receptor. So now, my postganglionic neuron in the sympathetics. Right. So it releases norepinephrine. So that means, what kind of receptor do I have to have? We have to have an adrenergic receptor. Close. <laughs> because it is accepting adrenaline. Now we have alpha and betas. I don't care if you know this. Alpha 1 and beta 1 are excitatory. Alpha 2 and beta 2 are inhibitory. Just know they're an adrenergic receptor on the effector organ of most effector organs for the sympathetic nervous system. That's the exception to the rule. That's why I said most. Okay, how are we doing? There is one more exception to the rule, of course. Because remember we talked about the adrenal medulla. Does the adrenal medulla really have a postganglionic neuron? No, right, so in this case, again, sympathetics go from T1 to L2, not a horn. My preganglionic neurons, what do they always release? Acetylcholine. That means my preganglionic neuron going to the adrenal medulla is what? It's a cholinergic neuron. But doesn't the medulla itself spit out norepinephrine and epinephrine? So once acetylcholine gets spit out, it actually stimulates the chromaffin cells, and those chromaffin cells are now going to spit out epinephrine and norepinephrine, and these are going to be hormones. Now remember from AP, Neurotransmitters have a shorter lifespan. Hormones have a larger lifespan. So you're going to have a much bigger and stronger and longer lasting effect when you stimulate the adrenal medulla than when you do when you stimulate any of the other sympathetic systems. So there's really no postganglionic neuron here to talk about. Now the only thing we should add is this. So this is a cholinergic neuron. 
This is a cholinergic neuron. So is epinephrine and norepinephrine, are they both? A neurotransmitter. And neurotransmitter. Yes! And then this one, <coughs> excuse me, the postganglionic neuron in the sympathetic nervous system that releases norepinephrine, we don't call cholinergic. We're going to call it an adrenergic neuron. How are we doing? And that's basically the next few slides. That's just basically what we drew. The somatic, <clears throat> the somatic nervous system, if you remember, um, the motor component anyways, is gonna come from the anterior gray horn, it's gonna go into the anterior root, which then goes through the intervertebral foramen that goes through the spinal cord, and then it releases acetylcholine right to the effector organ. So a somatic axon or a peripheral nerve would be a cholinergic neuron. And then what kind of receptor would you have to have here? You'd have to have a cholinergic receptor, right? Okay. All right. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the enteric nervous system. So, I erased it. But uh, remember we said that the, I'm just going to erase this for a minute. Remember we talked about the peripheral nervous system has the somatic and then it has the autonomic nervous system, then the autonomic nervous system has parasympathetic and then sympathetic, right? Okay, if you remember from AP, we said that the enteric nervous system can actually be a third entity on its own, completely independent of the autonomic nervous system. Or it could actually be controlled by the autonomic nervous system which is why I would never ask a question like that, because it could be either. So, if the enteric nervous system acts independently of the autonomic nervous system, that means that, remember your myenteric plexus, Ironbach plexus? Okay, so let's talk about the tunicas of the, large, of the, um, of the gastrointestinal system. So the outside tunica was the serosa. Remember the outside layer was a serosa. Then you went, so tunica serosa was outside. Then you had tunica muscularis. Does this sound familiar? Okay, and then tunica submucosa and then tunica mucosa. Okay, now in the tunica muscularis you had two layers with, and then the stomach if you recall was an exception because it actually has three. But the tunica muscularis has two layers. It has a longitudinal and then it has a circular inside. We said between those two layers, there's an Eierbach plexus, also known as a myenteric plexus, myo muscle enteric. So it's the plexus found between the two muscles that controls the gastrointestinal system. Tract, tract, not system, tract. So the enteric nervous system only controls the tract. It doesn't do the accessory organs. So it doesn't do mouth, doesn't do saliva, doesn't do pancreas, doesn't do spleen, doesn't do liver, doesn't do gallbladder. It only does the tract, which means mouth, pharynx, esophagus, stomach, small intestine, large intestine, rectum, anus. That's all it does. Is it responsible for Motility and excretion. So when the glands excrete that's in the tract, that's the enteric nervous system. The motility, the peristalsis, 
that's the enteric nervous system. Now, does the parasympathetic and sympathetics affect that as well? It can. But it doesn't have to. This could work on its own. Okay, so that's one of the, the enteric nervous system has two components. So one of them is my enteric plexus, which we said was between the two layers of the tunica muscularis, which is known as the my enteric plexus, also known as iron box plexus. And then you have your submucosal plexus. And if you remember, this is in the, in the tunica submucosa, which is also known as Meisner's plexus. That might ring a bell. So that also will stimulate secretion of the gastrointestinal tract and motility of the gastrointestinal tract. So those are the two things that you would put under the enteric plexus. So they're in the tunicas of the tract. Has nothing to do with the accessory organs. This only affects the tract. So the thing that's open at both ends, right? It says can function independently. Yes. Yeah, but if you actually go in, not that we would, but if you actually went in and did surgery and there would still be some motility or excretion of the gastrointestinal tract, even if you take that off. Like if you cut off the CNS, you can still have some continuation in the gastrointestinal system. It's not gonna last long. It's not gonna last hours, but for minutes that can continue and it would continue because of the enteric nervous system. Uh, okay, that could be enteric, it could also be autonomic because they could work together, they could work independently. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, know those two that are responsible for the enteric nervous system. Okay, so in this, this was between our um, tunica muscularis, right, between the longitudinal, between the circular, so that's your mind enteric plexus, and then this one's going to be in the submucosal layer, which is known as your submucosal plexus or your Meissner's plexus. Okay, so those are the two responsible for your enteric nervous system. Okay, so we already talked about all this. The next few slides is exactly what we drew. So I really think if you draw the sympathetic nervous system and you draw the receptors, like that's half the slides you don't even have to look at, just by two drawings. Anyway, so we talked about all of this. Yeah, 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 we did all this. Okay, so this we didn't mention. The um, acetylcholine actually gets taken up pretty quickly. So if you remember, so this we would call your synaptic cleft, right? This is your synaptic cleft or space, whatever word you want to use. This is your synaptic cleft or space. When you release acetylcholine, it gets taken up fairly quickly, either by the receptors or by the enzyme that breaks it down. So the effect of acetylcholine is actually pretty short. Whereas when you release neurotransmitter norepinephrine, the enzyme that breaks that up is actually much slower acting. So you can have a much longer effect of your sympathetics than you would of your parasympathetics. And it's simply because of the enzymes, how quick they work, okay? So we talked about, at the beginning, I can't remember, week two or three, we talked about ways that we can lose neurotransmitters. So the neurotransmitters can literally just diffuse away from the synaptic cleft. They can be taken up by the receptors. They can be broken down by enzymes. Remember we said that, those three different ways? So this is one of the two ways. It either gets taken up by the receptors or the enzymes break it down. 
But acetylcholine gets broken down much, much, much quicker than norepinephrine, which is why your parasympathetic stimulation effect is usually shorter. Okay. So we do have some things, i.e. meds, um, that can act as enhancers or agonists for neurotransmitters. So for example, you can take some medications that would actually kind of simulate your neurotransmitter release, which would stimulate a neurotransmitter, even though you're not releasing that neurotransmitter. Does that make sense? So that would be an agonist. If you took a medication that acted like a neurotransmitter that stimulated a cholinergic neuron, or receptor, sorry, that would be an agonist. Right. So that would be for the sympathetic nervous system. So that would be an agonist because it, it enhances it, it increases its action because it'll actually stimulate the receptors. But then you'll have an antagonist, which there are lots of medications for the heart which are antagonists, which will actually block. They'll literally do this. They will literally say, these are the receptors. I'm going to literally block them. I'm just going to stick onto them. So now when you release norepinephrine to your heart, now you don't have increased heart rate and increased blood pressure. So some of your cardiac medications will actually be antagonists for receptors, which, I mean, the goal is that you don't want to keep increasing your heart rate and your BP, right? So that's one of the ways that they would modulate it. So just know that there's agonists that increase the activity of the neurotransmitter, so it would enhance it, it would cause an effect, it would stimulate the receptor, whereas antagonists would actually basically attach to the receptor and not allow that neurotransmitter to have its effect because it has nowhere to attach, okay? Um, when it comes to pregnancy, and it depends what, where you are in your pregnancy as well, um, most medications are actually quite, um, damaging to the nervous system. So in the first three months, your whole neural tube is being developed, which means that's your whole nervous system. So you're talking about central nervous system, peripheral nervous system, your autonomic nervous system, you, you name it, it's being developed in your first three months. So a lot of these medications will actually start to damage the neural tube as it's growing because they're trying to have an effect on it, but yet it's trying to develop. It, it can't really accept it. It's a lot of these medications I don't want to say it's safe, but they're typically safer in the second or third trimester. The reason I can't say they're safe is because um, it's yes, kind of, I was just about to say that. <laughs> it's unethical. Yeah, it's unethical and there's actually very little research in the second and third trimester. Um, so when medications are prescribed, um, it's usually from empirical evidence, meaning this is what's been prescribed over the last 20 years and we haven't noticed any issues. But we don't really know. Well, and that's that's the problem. When when medications are prescribed in the second and third, typically they don't want to prescribe anything in the first trimester because that's like your highest risk of miscarriage. Um, but in the second or third trimester, there's no evidence to say it's safe. They usually say based on history because we'll, they'll use really old meds. They won't use anything that's new. They'll use really old meds because they'll say, well, we've prescribed this for the last 20 years and we haven't seen a lot of issues, but is it truly safe? And everybody is like, it's different, right? There are people who use drugs for the real pregnancy and have a normal baby. And then there's people who like drink 
like when they didn't know they were pregnant and their baby had problems. So it's just like everybody. Some people born. have no, never smoked in their life or had anyone around them have smoked and again in lung cancer. I know, it's genetic predisposition, some of it is, right? Okay, so you just have an idea about that. Okay, so there's a few things that are only activated by the sympathetic nervous system. So in fact, there's no parasympathetic stimulation. So erector pili, hint, hint, is one. Sweat glands, hint, hint, is another one. Hint, hint on those ones. Um, so spleen and kidney, blood, some of the blood vessels. So when we say blood vessels, it's not in general. Well, so... so Blood vessels, this is, this is really generalized and basic. Um, it's really more so smooth muscle of skeletal. It's really not GI, because GI is pretty much only innervated really by parasympathetics. So erectopilate is um, goosebumps, yeah. Uh, it's or the hair that elevates. And that's what brings the goosebumps. Yes. Adrenal medulla, of course. Would you have any parasympathetic stimulation? Either you stimulate it or you don't. And it's adrenaline. Right? And it's adrenaline you're releasing if it's stimulated. So have an idea, especially about the top two, hint, hint. Okay. So when we talk about a sympathetic response, we talk about our ease, our excitement. We talk about our emergency. We talk about embarrassment. So they say ease situations are usually sympathetic. So if you're sweating, that's usually a good sign that you're in sympathetics. Unless you're just really hot or you're hormonal in different parts of your cycle, that's a bit different. But typically, if you're sweating, because sweat glands are only stimulated by sympathetics, you're in sympathetics. Okay, your fight or flight, we all know this, right? Think about everything that your system has to go through if you're trying to get rid of an ax murder or trying to get away from an ax murder. So why are sympathetics why do they have a longer effect in the body than parasympathetics? Because you need that time to get away from whatever it is that you're... Well, it's the physiological reason. Because the enzymes take longer to break down the norepinephrine than it does the acetylcholine. That's, that's why, period. It's actually, there's actually a physiological reason for it. Okay. And then parasympathetics, this is all your like salivation, relaxation, GI motility, excretion of GI stuff. So they say slud, I don't know, it doesn't really help me, but um, when you wanna pee and you wanna poop, it's usually because you're relaxed and you know, you're not really worried about dying this second. And then of course, have an idea about what happens to the systems. Diameter of blood vessels increases, vasodilates to the GI and vasoconstricts to muscles. When you're sitting there having a drink on the beach, do you need to have lots of blood supply to your muscles? No! So, when we talk about diameter of smooth muscle, think about it, is it GI or is it skeletal muscle? Because they're actually gonna be opposite, right? So have an idea about these, because there's like probably three to five questions just on the systems. What do they do in parasympathetic and what do they do in sympathetic, right? Okay. So we already talked about these interoreceptors, so your baroreceptors, your mechanical receptors. Your mechanoreceptors are things like your baroreceptors, and then you have your osmoreceptors, and that gives information to your hypothalamus. Hypothalamus will then stimulate the autonomic nervous system and or the enteric nervous system if it needs to, right? So that's your hypothalamus is going to stimulate your autonomic nervous system. So then you're gonna get your preganglionic axons, 
that are stimulated, which are going to then go into a ganglia to release acetylcholine. Then they're going to stimulate your postganglionic neurons, which are then going to release a neurotransmitter to then stimulate your effector organs. And your effector organs are always your involuntary things, right? Cardiac muscle, smooth muscle, and glands, period. So if we ask you what the effector organs are for the autonomic nervous system, that's it. Okay. Okay. So special senses. Hint, hint, when we talked about the sensory homunculus, did it involve the special senses? No, just sensory skin. Right, it's touch, it's prickle, it's pain, it's pressure, it's temperature. It is somatosensory information. It is not special sensory. I'll give you guys lots of hints for the quiz. However, the hypothalamus will take in a lot of information from your special senses. What do you hear? What do you see? What do you taste? What do you smell? What do you feel? All of that gets integrated, if you remember, into the thalamus, and the thalamus, via the internal capsule, is going to put it where it needs to go. Well, the hypothalamus takes some of that information, because that information can sometimes be very helpful in reacting. Because okay. the hypothalamus evaluates? whether there's a danger or is that your thalamus that does that? The, the, the thalamus just, just sends it out. So you will have the hypothalamus will take in information. It won't necessarily integrate it. That will actually be different parts of the cerebrum that will do it. But you'll have some of the basic information going into the thalamus to give you information so that you know how to react. Right? Basic, basic stuff. Basic reactions for the autonomic nervous system. Okay, so you need to know where parasympathetics come from. So when you say cranial nerve 3, 7, 9, and 10, don't forget 3 comes from midbrain mesencephalon, 7 comes from pons, 9, 10 comes from medulla and then lateral gray horn of S2 to S4. We need to know sympathetics come from lateral gray horn of T1, T1 all the way down to L2. L2. We need to know T1 to T5 is going to innervate. Right, so heart, lungs, and head, face, right? Whereas greater splanchnic nerve is going to do, yeah, like the upper third, almost half-ish, and then Lesser splanchnic is going to do small intestine with a little bit of the large intestine. And then least kidneys, right? And then the lumbar splanchnic is going to do the pooping, right? Distal half of the large intestine. So we definitely need to know that. We need to know that T5 to T9 is going to go to celiac anglia. We need to know that. 10 and 11 are going to go to supermesenteric. We need to know T12 is going to go to renal. We need to know L1, L2 is going to go to inferior mesenteric. You have to know that. And you have to know what splanchnic nerves they're called, what those preganglionic neurons are called. Again, ask a question like that. The postganglionic neurons from the cilia innervate what? The postganglionic <coughs> neurons of the inferior mesenteric innervate what? We'll ask those kinds of questions. The ganglia for the parasympathetic. Know them. Is this is the quiz next week more of this 
heavy or the humongous guy heavy? So there's 40 marks. And I think I calculated that. That's not a quiz, that's a test. Yeah, was. Um, I think, I think 12, no, maybe 13 to 15 are today's lecture. And then the rest would be last week's lecture. So it's mostly last week. Uh, yeah, like probably like 25-ish from last week-ish, ish. Ish. But, okay, so some of this stuff is cumulative, as you can see, right? Like cranial nerves, it's kind of cumulative. So I, I mean, that stuff, stuff we did in week six. But I, I might ask that. There's some other stuff that we did in week six that I might ask, like parts of the brain. Like, I don't know, um, what are the superior colliculi and the inferior colliculi? Um, okay, so the reticular activation system is in the whole brain stem. So that's your visual, sturdle, and auditory. So that's your sturdle reflex, like, whoa, what just happened? And your superior and inferior colliculi, if you recall, they're called the tectum, which is where your tectospinal tract comes from. So what is the function of the cerebellum? Balance, Balance and precise movements, right? Coordination. So there is like a few things like the tectum and the cerebellum that you should have an idea about that I will ask about. So it's, I don't know, what is it? Um, there's a picture, five, six, seven, eight. I think there's eight marks on a picture that you're gonna have to label a picture. I already told you last, on Friday, pretty much what the picture is gonna be. And then there's associations. So what, what, Primary cortices does this. What association cortices do this? Broca's area does this. Wernicke's area does this. Um, what is a tectum? What is the cerebellum? What is, what is a prefrontal lobe? What is its function, right? So there's going to be the associations. Remember how there's lines and then there's A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and then, yeah, matching. Okay, so there's going to be that. One diagram, that's worth eight marks. Matching, I think that's worth 10. And then the rest is all multiple choice. How are we doing? Okay, I'd like to watch at least one video. There is two, but we can at least watch one. This is the shorter of the two, so we'll start with this one. Ooh. Our body's voluntary and involuntary actions and transmits signals between different parts of the body. It is divided into two anatomical divisions, the central nervous system, CNS, 